Welcome to this podcast. Can you hear me? The following presentation is intended only for immature audiences. It is against nature. And God said, let there be F-bombs. And they were good. And they multiplied. Right here in this podcast. We have even regenerated dead tissue. Oh, brother. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a couple of weeks since my latest episode. Who is this? Hi there, and welcome to the Hansel and Gretel Code. I remember. Uh, right, uh, this is episode 25. In our last episode... We spent a lot of time talking about Hansel's moon rocks and their metaphoric connection to the intuitive arts of astrology and alchemy. And then we brought up their more historic connection to the rosary and Catholic prayer. In this episode, we're going to see how those stones are connected to yet another intuitive art one that opens up a rabbit hole we just can't avoid entering. Not if we expect to get to the bottom of Hansel and Gretel and find all of those jewels I promised you back in episode one. Okay, but you go first. Part one. Teil 1. In which we watch Hansel trying to make enough coin to keep everyone's shit together. Shine shoes, clean sewers, did anything for money. <clears throat> so, let me remind you of where we are in the story by having our German storyteller extraordinaire, Jürgen Lexau, once again give us the manuscript version of Hansel's little moonwalk. Dann stand er leis auf und ging hinaus vor die Türe. Da war's Mondenschein und die weißen Kieselsteine glänzten vor dem Haus. Der Knabe las sie sorgfältig auf und füllte sein Rocktäschlein damit, so viel er nur hineinbringen konnte. After that, he got up and tiptoed out the door, where the moon shone and the little white pebbles in front of the house glistened. The little boy carefully picked them up and filled his jacket pockets with as many of them as he could. So, uh, what do we got here? I don't know. Hey, it's okay. All we need to do right now is to notice what Hansel is actually doing with those little white stones. What? Yeah, he's carefully picking them up and stuffing his pockets with them. Now, as mundane and logical as this detail is, it serves to confirm the fact that our intuition, the aspect of our own consciousness represented by Hansel, well, it's actively expending energy and doing some form of work. 
and it's doing so at night, meaning in the unconscious. Now, of course, for you and me, especially in the context of this podcast, we're used to putting our intuition to work in the light of day, meaning in all consciousness. And that's because we have some respect for it. We pay attention to it. But you see, for most everyone else who reads this fairy tale, or listens to someone reading it to them, Hansel's doing a job in and on their unconscious. So, uh, you get what I'm saying here? You catching my drift? No. Well, it's unfortunate, but our culture doesn't know squat about intuition. And what it thinks it knows is really just a bunch of misinformation. And yet the intuition of anyone who doesn't understand it, or even believe in it, is still doing its level best to keep them from being eaten by the witch. Porra says, what a load of bollocks. Yeah, well, that goes back to what I said about modern-day witches in episode one. I remember. Oh, right. And even if you don't remember, it's all going to make way more sense as we get deeper into our work on the fairy tale. Anyway, this work that Hansel's doing right now, it isn't anything that can feed a family or earn a buck, which is a big part of the reason our culture has little or no respect for intuition. In fact, what's usually believed about intuition is that all it can do is make bogus claims about predicting the future. I have always lived in the future. <clears throat> well, despite those beliefs, Hansel is doing the kind of important work that's meant to reunite the family. In other words, given the dire situation symbolized by the famine and the loss of divine grace, not to mention the effect that has on all four functions of consciousness. This work of intuition, well, it's meant to prevent an impending dissociation of consciousness. So you could say we're watching intuition do its level best to keep everyone's shit together. And we could also say it's the kind of work that conforms to the definition of prayer or at least some aspect of it, as in saying the rosary. Oh my gut, oh my gut, oh my gut. Then again, it's something else as well. What's that? Uh, to understand what that something else is, we've got to repeat the Grimm's version of events. And we've got to pay particular attention to their description of those little moon rocks. Now, all they did, of course, was to add an innocuous little simile to the manuscript version. But I gotta tell you, it's looking more and more likely they were intent on giving us another hint as to the meaning of the fairy tale. A hint that even less intuitive types than us might be able to pick up on. What a load of rubbish! Da schien der Mond ganz helle, und die weißen Kieselsteine die vor dem Haus lagen, glänzten wie lauter Batzen. Hänsel bückte sich 
und steckte so viel in sein Rocktäschlein, als nur hinein wollten. The moon shone brightly, and the white pebbles which lay in front of the house glittered like real silver pennies. Hansel stooped and stuffed the little pocket of his coat with as many as he could get in. Now this LibriVox translation says the pebbles were like real silver pennies. And, just so you know, the Grimms used the term lauter Batzen. Huh? Well, Batzen were coins that were originally minted from real silver. But since Germany wasn't a unified country with a central government or federal mint, local governments minted their own Batzen. And sometimes they added other non-precious metals to the mix. Now, it turns out you couldn't always tell if the coins you had were the real thing or not. And even if they were, you couldn't always know what their true value was. That's bad. That, that's bad. That, that's bad. Well, in any case, the term lauter, that means they were the real McCoy. Meaning that Hansel's stones were like coins made of real silver. Good enough. I know it seems like such an insignificant detail. In fact, it seems so insignificant that Margaret Hunt, one of the best known translators of the Grimm's Tales, well, she actually left out the word real in her translation. She just said the stones were glistening like silver coins. Yeah, so what? See, I think, or my intuition thinks, that this reference to real silver, it was meant to emphasize the occult connection between these stones, the moon, and alchemy. And what I mean is real alchemy, just as I spoke of in episode 24. I remember. Yeah, so I get it. This may sound like metaphoric overkill, but there really is a connection here. In other words, just as people could be fooled by bogus Batson, they could also be fooled by bogus alchemists. Who cares? So I gotta say, in an admittedly Virgoan philologic aside, I found that sometime between 1317 and 1322, the French Pope John XXII, or Jean XXIIème, well, he wrote two separate decretals concerning counterfeiting. One, known as Rodians quasi ex adipe, literally meaning proceeding as it were from fat, specifically threatened counterfeiters with excommunication. Now, the other, more famous decretal, that was known as Spondent Quas Non Exhibent, which uh, sort of means guaranteeing something they can't produce. Now, this papal decretal forbade alchemists from trying to pass off fake gold or silver as real, or to make it into coins. Now, their punishment wasn't excommunication, but it was pretty heavy, because they had to make restitution with real gold or silver, equal in weight to what they had counterfeited. Uh! 
Now, whether or not the Grimms deliberately inserted that word louder as a cheeky little reference to those two papal decretals, which would mean that, just like that coffin carpentry business of episode 20, it would qualify as yet another instance of metalepsis. Well, anyway, the word botson and the associated idea of silver is definitely an occult reference. So I don't know what connotations that word occult has for you, although I suspect they'd be awfully similar to what mine always were. For me, occult always meant something woo-woo, magical, dark, secretive, mysterious, and quite possibly dangerous. Of course, for uber-logical, scientific types, it might even have included those same connotations, but would probably always include the adjectives irrational and bogus. Oh, absolutely. You know, something having to do with seances, Ouija boards, and the word charlatans. They called me a charlatan. Oh dear, that's rather alarming. Now once you learn the truth about intuition, though, it becomes obvious. The word occult really means metaphoric, intuitive. And if there's anything secretive about it, it just means hidden from the eyes of logic and all those histrionic despisers of intuition. Enough rants. Okay, rant over. Now, if we were to brainstorm silver coins, we'd have to include a reference to Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, with uh, Judas and his 30 pieces of silver. Definitely. Yet, uh, an interpretation like that, it's loaded in a very different sort of direction. I mean, the word Judas, it's pretty much synonymous with betrayal. And while there are plenty of legitimate biblical references peppered throughout this fairy tale? Betrayal of friends? That doesn't fit anywhere in the story of Hansel and Gretel. Why the fuck not? It seems so far off the mark, I think it's safe to ignore. Now, for, for my money, what makes the most sense here is the alchemical connection. See, in alchemy, each of the seven planets are connected symbolically with a particular metal, silver being the metal of the moon. Uh, iron is the metal of Mars, copper is the metal of Venus, gold is the metal of the sun, and blah, 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 so on and so forth. But this just repeats what we've already understood about alchemy from episode 24. So I guess there's no greater depth of meaning to be found in these stones, right? Yes, sir. Or is there? No, sir. Well, turns out there is something here of crucial importance. And it's based on a curious detail that appears in plenty of other fairy tales. What's that? It's something that looks like a rabbit hole. But let me tell you, unless we go through it, we'd probably miss the point of the entire fairy tale. No, no, forget it. Forget it. Eh, suit yourself. But if you don't come along, 
you're going to miss out on a snazzy sort of magical fashion show. No way. Oh, yeah. Trust me. This is too good to miss out on. And it really will be magical as hell. All right, if you insist. Part 2 Teil 2 In which we hit a fashion show of fairy tale couture and end up giving three cheers for the designer. Yay! So, I mentioned other fairy tales and fairy tale couture. Okay, okay. I'm thinking of two stories that don't really seem to have much in common with Hansel and Gretel. One of them is Perrault's donkey skin, or Poudin. Ooh, alas, son. Oh, my God. And the other one that I'm more familiar with, well, it's the Grimm's All Kinds of Fur, or Allerleirau. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. And both of these tales, the heroine demands the manufacture of three dresses. One as golden as the sun. One as white as the moon. And one that glistens like the stars. I love that dress because I can see your round buttocks right through it. Okay, okay. In striking parallel to our own tale, the Grimm's 1812 version specifies the second dress to be as white as the moon. You know, white like those pebbles. While in their final 1857 version, they changed the specs on that dress to silver as the moon. So whatever significance professional folklorists have assigned to these three dresses, my own intuition has always connected them to the three main occult practices known to Western European culture, namely alchemy, astrology, and witchcraft. I don't get it. In the same way that cloth in the phrase man of the cloth is a rhetorical trope that substitutes cloth for clergy. In these fairy tales, the different dresses qualify as the same sort of thing, a so-called metonymy, which is just a specific form of metaphor that equates each dress with the practice of one of those occult intuitive arts. This is really confusing for me. While it was crystal clear to me that alchemy was implied by a reference to the sun and the color gold, and astrology was implied by a reference to the stars, connecting the moon and the color white or silver with the practice of witchcraft or even magic, it had always caused me some odd, niggling little doubt. And what I'm getting at is how in our story, 
We not only find both alchemy and astrology symbolized in Hansel's moon rocks, we really should have witchcraft, or at least some form of magic implied in them as well, right? Well, I... I don't know. Yeah, see? We've both got some doubts. I mean, given that we're going to have witchcraft implied in the more literal example of our gingerbread witch... Is that really what the moon implies here? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> How could witchcraft be connected to our innocent little Hansel? I don't know. Well, my incomplete understanding of witchcraft was partially to blame for my earlier doubts. Uh, excuse you. But then my subsequent research... It suddenly opened up a world I had only been marginally aware of. And I'm not just talking about witchcraft or Wicca or even magic with a K. What are you talking about? I'm talking about hermeticism. Uh? And of course, I'm not talking about Herman's hermits or those crabby old guys who live in that weird house down the block. You kids, get off my lawn! I'm not even talking about those holy hermits and anchorites from episode 6. I'm talking about a whole world of ancient texts, known as the Corpus Hermeticum so-called by virtue of their presumptive author, Hermes Trismegistus, or Thrice Great Hermes. Ooh, I guess that's three cheers for Hermes. Teil 3 In which we discover one hell of a new urge, but then resist the urge to go... Uh, chasing rabbits? Thank you. So, hermeticism is something you might call a kind of religious philosophy. Something akin to Gnosticism. And more importantly... It's a kind of philosophic, intuitive umbrella that might as well be considered the source of astrology, alchemy, and a third hugely important intuitive art known as... Pizza. Uh, no. It's known as... Theurgy. The fuck is this? Here, well, just hang on for a sec. We're going to get to that. See, learning about hermeticism, that cured the niggling doubt I'd had about the connection between witchcraft and the moon. And that's because it introduced me to theurgy, which, as far as I can tell, is a much more inclusive and ancient intuitive art than what we tend to think of as witchcraft. And what I mean is, witchcraft seems to be a branch of theurgy which itself is a branch of Hermeticism. 
In fact, the relationship between alchemy, astrology, and theurgy is explained by the fact that all three come under the rubric of Hermeticism. Hmm. Now, I can't recall or recreate from my notes the breadcrumbs that led me to Hermeticism, although I suspect it came out of my research into witchcraft. But what I learned, and what completely blew me away, was a quote I came across in the wiki page on Hermeticism. It said, There are two different types of magic, completely opposite of each other. The first is Goetia, black magic reliant upon an alliance with evil spirits, that is, demons. The second is Tyrgy, divine magic reliant upon an alliance with divine spirits, that is, angels, archangels, gods. Mm. So then, from the wiki page on Goetia, I learned that during the Renaissance, Goetia, Latinized as Goetia, was sometimes contrasted with Magia as black versus white magic, or with Theurgy as low versus high magic. So what? Well, the part that blew me away wasn't the black magic Goetia business. That was new information, since as far as I knew, I hadn't come across that word Goetia before in my research. It was also a bit puzzling, since it doesn't seem that far off from the practice of necromancy. You know, the calling up of dead spirits that we mentioned in episode 12. And for sure, it coincides with the business of grimoires that we came across in episode 22. You know, a grimoire was a kind of magic telephone book. It had all the names you needed to know if you wanted to call up any of those angels or demons. Now, what totally blew me away was that name. Theurgy. It seemed so new because I didn't think I'd ever come across it before. And just so you know, I've read a whole hell of a lot of Jung, and if he ever mentioned it, it somehow didn't make much of an impression on me, which would really surprise me, because uh, let me tell you, what I learned about Theurgy, it was a game changer. And not only because Theurgy is intimately related to alchemy and astrology, Theurgy is actually central to Jung's practice of psychology. What? Yeah, so let me explain. When you go looking for more academic definitions of theurgy, you can quickly and easily get stuck in the mud of their uber-logical thinking and very proper academic speak. Oh, no. Uh, Don't get me wrong, though. I have total respect for the academics who did the very hard work of reading the original material related to theurgy and hermeticism. Not to mention the mountains of analytic papers and books that their fellow academics have written about it. I just can't get over the impression, though, that none of them actually know what intuition is. And it's obvious to me that theurgy 
and Hermeticism, in all of its branches, is the work of intuition itself. Ah. Now, according to one important academic, Bert Vandenberg of the University of Leiden, the precise meaning of the word theurgia is much debated. Contrary to theologia, it is not just a matter of speaking about the divine, but also involves action. Well, okay. Now, what do you know? Right there, we have our intuitive observation about Hansel taking action and performing some sort of work. See, just as we've got Hansel doing the physical work of collecting stones, theurgy, it involves the work of performing rituals and also the singing of hymns as active rather than passive or intellectual forms of not just magic, but of worship. Well, fine then. So here's a quote from another important academic text I found that says the exact same thing and then explains a bit more of what Professor Vandenberg did, but in a language that's a little less opaque. This text was the PhD thesis of the late Ruth Meyerchik of UC Santa Barbara, and it's called The Chaldean Oracles, Text, Translation, and Commentary. Now I'm going to quote Professor Meyerchik, just notice the way you could easily insert the word witchcraft for magic, or even for theurgy. She wrote, How are we to distinguish theurgy from magic, which it closely resembles? Is theurgy simply a form of white or good magic, in contrast to black or evil magic associated with the name Goetia? Yes and no. Theurgy certainly appropriates many of the techniques familiar to the magician, but its purpose is quite different. Whereas common magic has a profane goal, for example, in its white form of influencing a lover or affecting the weather, theurgy has a specific religious or salvific end, the purification and salvation of the soul. Theurgy should be regarded basically as a religious phenomenon, albeit one that is comfortable with the outward forms of magic. That is excellent. Now, there really is so much academic material out there on theurgy, we really could get lost in it. So we'll just stick to one more small quote from Professor Vandenberg, saying the same thing as Professor Meyerchik. He says that the object of theurgy is the reversion of the human soul upon the divine world and consists in the process of ascent of the human soul to its divine origin. See, in his words, the object of theurgy is to become like the divine. And he also calls this reversion or return to the divine source epistrophe which isn't all that far off from henosis, or a Gnostic return to the one that we first mentioned in episode 5. And since theurgy really includes becoming divine, 
It's the same thing that Margarita Porete got burned at the stake for back in 1310. Remember her from episode 8? No. Well, all of this return to the father business, return to the source and unification with the one business, well, that's all the true goal of Hansel and his sister Gretel. Which means that the fairy tale itself works as a metaphor for the intent of theurgy. Oh my god, this is so heavy. I can't stand it. Part 4 Teil 4 In which we say hello to the Newman. Hiya, Newman! Oh, brother. One thing in particular has always stood out from my reading of Jung, and that is his constant reliance on Rudolf Otto's concept of the numinous and numinous experience, which Otto wrote about in his book on the idea of the holy, and which basically amounts to an eloquent explanation of what is actually meant by what most everyone would call a religious experience. It's something I spoke about in episode three. I remember. According to Otto, the word numinous derives from the Latin word numen, and it really means the felt presence of the deity, what's otherwise known as a theophany, which actually means the deity putting in a personal appearance. You know, like what happened to Bernadette Soubirou at Lourdes. You could even say it's a cheeky little Easter egg hiding in plain sight in so many episodes of Seinfeld. Hello, Newman. Are you kidding me? Hey, even if the intentional meaning of that gag had nothing to do with anything numinous, which Jerry insists was the case, your intuition understands the occult truth within it, so uh, I kid you not. But I digress. The important and memorable thing for me was that whenever Jung referred to the word Newman, he said that it means a sign or a nod. Actually, Jung didn't mention that word Newman very often. But the first time I read it, it left such a deep impression, I never forgot it. So, the silliness of Seinfeld aside, we could say that the Newman is exactly what a third base coach gives you. What? Yeah, well, that's definitely true. Even if the majority of third base coaches in the history of baseball never studied any Latin. Oh my god. All right, well, in explaining the Newman, Jung said that the ancients would whisper a heartfelt question or intention into the ear of a statue of a god or goddess. Anyway, after whispering their question, the person would sit before the statue and wait attentively, patiently, and meditatively for an answer. I'm waiting. Now, the image of Catholic believers kneeling before statues of saints or statues of Christ or Mary, 
but a so-called novena it might be a more familiar form of the same concept. I'm waiting. Although what Jung described, it's awfully similar to the proper way of using the I Ching, or runes, or even tarot cards. Uh, I'm still here waiting. So now, here's the kicker. According to Jung, the answer from the god or goddess, it came in the form of a physically perceived sign, or a nod from the statue. In other words, a Newman. And believe me, he was adamant in insisting that this actually happened for those reverential supplicants. And maybe not necessarily as a physical reality, but certainly as a psychic reality. That is, as an intensely felt, intuitive experience. I'm waiting! Now he cites it as an experience of the numinous, because it really meant that the god or goddess made their presence known to you. Wow. Now the point I'm trying to make is that it was only in reading the academic accounts of theurgy that I was able to see the connection between Jung's definition of the Newman and theurgy. He never said so specifically, but he was in fact describing the very practice of theurgy, which academics call, somewhat derisively, animating statues. They also describe it as bringing down gods into the statues. And what I learned is that the source of the idea comes from a specific hermetic text known as the Asclepius. Interesting. Of course, this idea of animating statues, it extends right down into the most superstitious and literal form of the practice, which is why academics like to roll their eyes over the whole business. See, there were likely to be as many people trying to achieve a literal version of this sort of statue magic as there are people hoping to turn a $1 lottery ticket into multi-millions. And when you think about it, this description of theurgy, it's also the basis of that very entertaining story known as The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is actually an antique story of magic that Goethe wove into a poem, and that I, like most boomers, was introduced to via Walt Disney's Fantasia. Okay, boomer. Hey, it's also a basic form of the process that was dramatized in Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, since that involved the reanimation of dead tissue. It is truly disgusting. But all of this would still be as much of a logical misunderstanding of intuition and theurgy as the idea of literally changing lead into gold is a logical misunderstanding of alchemy. Who cares? Well, I think you and I need to keep the real flame of intuition going. And keep reminding ourselves where history has lumped the bogus in with the true and thrown a wet blanket over the whole thing. That said, there really is something to laugh about in theurgy. And that's how it's comically connected to the so-called talking statues of Rome. What are they? See, there's a group of statues scattered around Rome. 
and they embody an incredibly witty play on the ancient theme of theurgy. The most famous of these statues, the so-called Pasquino, is not only alive and well today, but ironically is something of an adopted child to one of the characters in our story. And just in case you've never heard of him, it's a tradition in Rome for people to write crazy, witty little poems anonymously criticizing the powers that be and tape them to one of the statues. Satiric little poems like that have been around for a long time, and they're called Pasquinades, after Il Pasquino. Yes, you are right. Hooray! In our next episode, we still have this rabbit hole of theurgy to consider. Uh-oh. And we will be going a bit deeper into it in the course of the next couple of episodes. Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. So, uh, if you want to bail on the podcast, I hate to see you go, but eh, I understand. Of course, that means you'll be missing out on an all-expenses-paid trip to the underworld led by the Cumian Sybil and a personal introduction to the real Dr. Faustus. But hey, I get it. Oh, no. So, before I go, though, there are a couple of things. First of all, a huge shout-out to Edwin Alvarez, a longtime friend from Chicago who's not only a practitioner of Chinese medicine and acupuncture, but a generous supporter of the show. Thanks for tossing some bread my way, Edwin. The grace of your support is much, much appreciated, my friend. And if anybody else is so inclined to get mentioned on the show, or, I mean, contribute to the podcast, there's a link to my Buy Me a Coffee page on the website and in the show notes. You know the drill. Visit us on the web at www.betweenthelines.xyz. All righty then. Ciao a tutti. I'm still here, waiting! This concludes our broadcast day. Good night, and God bless America. Ciao, ciao.